0: Here is one of our many recordings from the Revolutionary Ideas online festival held on the 28th and 29th of November, 2020. This was a weekend of Marxist discussion and debate held by Socialist Alternative. Want to join our fight? Go to socialistalternative.net today and get in touch to play your role in the struggle for a world free of capitalist oppression. In Russia, the working class played a central role in the revolutionary struggle and was actively involved in establishing a socialist society. By comparison, in Cuba, the working class were almost completely absent as an organised force from the revolutionary movement. The overthrow of the military dictatorship was achieved through a guerrilla struggle and the planned economy was established bureaucratically um, from the top down. But before we go on to examine the role of the working class in these two revolutionary movements, I think it's important to give comrades some background and context to what happened in Cuba leading up to the revolution. So for hundreds of years, Cuba's history was dominated by the conquests of imperialism. Initially, it was a Spanish colony and following the Spanish-American War in the 19th century, Cuba formally gained its independence but under a post-war settlement, the US retained the right to intervene in Cuban affairs. One of the reasons that the US still has a base in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, for example, can be traced back to the post-war settlement. Consequently, by the 1950s, Cuba was economically and politically bound to US imperialism. And as such, it was a paradise for the rich, particularly for American tourists. But conversely, <coughs> it was a nightmare for workers and peasants. The economy was dominated by US corporations. US firms owned 90% of telephone and electrical services, for example, 50% of public services, 40% of raw sugar production, Cuba's largest export. 20% of the land was owned by less than 1% of the population, whereas nearly of all farms were small peasant holdings of less than one acre. The living conditions of the Cuban workers and peasants were appalling. In a good year, the unemployment rate was 25%, but that could rise to 50% in a bad economic year. To summarise then, Cuba's economy was dominated by foreign capital, resting upon a semi-feudal system where small farmers and workers were eking out an existence in extreme poverty. So we're gonna skip forward and look at 1952. So in 1952, Cuba was governed by a right-wing military dictatorship under Fulgencia Batista, whose coup and leadership had the full backing of the US government. Batista's regime was characterized by corruption and brutality. And there are some shocking figures. Between 1953 and 1959, it's estimated that 20,000 Cubans were murdered by the regime. When describing Cuba under Batista, American historian Arthur Schlesinger wrote, The corruption of the government, the brutality of the police, the government's indifference to the needs of the people for education, medical care, housing, social justice and economic justice, is an open invitation to revolution. Now, in the 1930s, there had been a tradition of workers' struggle in Cuba, including a series of militant strikes in the sugar mills. But these have been defeated. And the workers' movement in Cuba was not helped by the position of the, the Cuban Communist Party, which by this time was supporting the Batista regime as a so-called progressive nationalist government. Now, this is a significant point, and I will pick it up again later on um, in, the, in my introduction. So during this period, the main opposition to the regime developed among the petty bourgeois, made up of small businesses who had been made bankrupt by the US-dominated um, monopolies, students who resented the domination of their country by a foreign power, and small landowners paralysed by US-backed big landlords. And amongst that group was Fidel Castro. As a student, Castro had become involved in anti-imperialist activism, and he himself described himself as politically illiterate. And he stood in one student election on a platform of honesty, decency, and justice. So it's hardly revolutionary. Castro's political consciousness at this time led him to conclude that it was only going to be an armed struggle by a group of committed revolutionaries that will kick out imperialism from Cuba. And we can see how his ideas and his consciousness developed, because in 1947, he took part in an expedition to the Dominican Republic with with the aim of liberating it from US imperialism but that attempt uh, ultimately failed. So before the Cuban revolution of 59, Castro led two attempts to overthrow the Batista regime. On the 26th of July, 1953, he led uh, around 120 men to to storm the Moncada barracks to seize arms, they wanted weapons. They were caught and Castro was jailed for 15 years. But he was released after two years and fled to Mexico, where he met Che Guevara, a young Argentinian doctor. Now, the guerrilla movement in Cuba was named the July 26th movement in honour of the Moncada incident. So that's how I'll refer to it from now on. So if you hear the July 26th movement, that's what I'm talking about. So in November 1956, Castro returned to Cuba for attempt number two with a guerrilla force of around 80 men, including his brother Raúl Castro and Che Guevara. On landing on Cuba's shores, they were immediately ambushed by US soldiers. And many of the rebels were killed. But both Fidel Castro and his brother Raúl and Guevara escaped to the mountains in the south of Cuba. And it was from here that they organised uh, their guerrilla campaign in the stronghold of the mountains. And by 1959, Castro's forces had numbered around 30. Uh, sorry, 300, which is a relatively small number, but one that with persistence and tenacity and resting on the support of peasants and small landowners was able to undermine and demoralize Batista's army of around 37,000. In fact, many of Batista's units eventually deserted to the guerrillas, and by 1959 Batista fled and Castro's forces entered Havana to seize seize power. Throughout the guerrilla campaign, the workers played a minor role, although it's important to recognize that in 1957 and 1958 there were general strikes across Cuba, um, which lasted several days. And on the eve of the revolution in 1959, workers rose once again rose up to greet the movement as it entered Havana. So the workers supported the ousting of Batista, but they played an auxiliary role in the conquest of power. One of the first acts of the new government was to nationalise all US property. This was obviously a major challenge to the might of US imperialism which responded by freezing all Cuban assets in the US and imposing a trade embargo on Cuba. The biggest threat to US imperialism was the example of a successful revolution on their doorstep. Cuba was and still is a beacon to other revolutionary movements in Latin America. The biggest threat to the Cuban revolution was political and economic isolation. The Soviet Union quickly became Cuba's main ally, providing resources and political support. Crucially, the Soviet Union offered a model of how to organize society with a planned economy, albeit bureaucratically from the top down. So of course, a planned economy brought huge gains for the Cuban workers and peasants. The revolution ushered in free healthcare and education. Life expectancy in Cuba today Is 79 compared to just 60 in 1950. Infant mortality in Cuba has fallen dramatically in the same period from 87 infant deaths per thousand in 1950 to four infant deaths per thousand in 2019, which is incidentally a lower lower figure than the US. Cuba has a worldwide reputation for providing excellent health care for its population with the best doctor-patient ratio in the world. Following the the revolution, a national literacy campaign was launched to improve the literacy rate amongst adults, which was hugely successful, taking literacy levels from 60% in 1959 to 96% in 1961, so in a two-year period. This is just a snapshot of what was achieved in Cuba. So at this point, I think it's important to reflect upon the similarities and differences between what happened in Cuba and the Russian Revolution of 1917. Why is it, as socialists, that we put these two revolutions side by side and we we compare them? Well, I suppose one answer to that question is that if it's possible to overthrow capitalism with a group of armed rebels who do not adopt, um, a group of armed rebels why do we not adopt this strategy or this method today as socialists? Well, the first thing that needs to be said to that is that it wouldn't have, would not have been impossible for Cuba to sustain itself without the external support of the Soviet Union. Within a year of taking power, the US under Eisenhower had cut off oil supplies and had taken action to isolate the Cuban economy, as I spoke to about earlier on. The Soviet Union provided Cuba with an oil tanker a day. The Soviets also subsidized Cuban sugar, paying over double the world market rate. They provided an aid package worth over a million dollars per day, and they deferred Cuba's debts. They basically bankrolled Cuba. We must also look at this in the context of the Cold War, in which there was a world balance of forces between the planned economies of the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe and China on the one hand and the capitalist West on the other. Effectively, the Cuban Revolution rested on the shoulders of the Russian Revolution. Without the intervention of the Soviet Union, it would have been relatively easy for the might of US imperialism to starve out the Cubans and re-establish power and control. By contrast, then, in Russia, the Bolsheviks established a worker state from the outset. The programme of the Bolsheviks put the working class at the very centre of the socialist transformation of society. Their perspectives drew on the works of Marx and Engels, who identified the proletariat as the only force capable of replacing capitalism. In the 19th century, they'd been given a taste of what was possible with the events of the Paris Commune in 1871 which was the first example of the working class consciously taking power. This was seen dramatically in Russia in 1905, where workers all over Russia had formed independent workers' councils or Soviets. In contrast to other revolutionary groups, the Bolsheviks under Lenin's leadership orientated themselves directly to the workers and agitated for the taking over of the commanding heights of the economy. In practice, when a national crisis erupted in February in 1917 and the workers reformed the Soviets, this became crystallised in the slogan bread, peace and land. Bread for the workers, peace for the soldiers fighting on the front in the First World War and land for the peasants. A worked out socialist programme was missing from the 26th of July movement. Unlike the Bolsheviks, Castro was not a Marxist or indeed a socialist. In a pamphlet published by the 26th of July movement, it stated that it adhered to a Jeffersonian philosophy. It subscribed to the Lincoln formula proclaiming the desire to reach a state of solidarity and harmony between capital and labour in order to raise productivity. Within the guerrilla leadership um there were three distinct, distinct, I'll say that again, within the leadership of the guerrilla movement, there were three distinct strands who were united by the need to overthrow um, Batista, but had very different ideas about what would follow. Castro represented the bourgeois nationalist strand, working towards Cuban liberation and the establishment of a modern democracy in Cuba. Guevara was a genuine Marxist who saw beyond the ousting of Batista to establishing a socialist society where the working class were in control and significantly, a society without a privileged bureaucracy. An excerpt from Guevara's diary revealed how his views diverged from many of the guerrillas. He wrote, through isolated conversations, I discovered the evident anti-communist inclinations of many of them. The third strand was represented by Raúl Castro. As a communist, he supported the Stalinist stages theory of revolution. And the stages theory theory maintains that in underdeveloped countries like Cuba, and Russia, where a bourgeois democratic revolution is yet to take place, the tasks of communists is to support the progressive bourgeois to establish democracy, and once that has been achieved. For an indefinite period a socialist trans- uh, transformation society is then possible. This had been the flawed position of the Cuban Communist Party who had up until the point uh, up until this point had supported Batista's regime believing that it was progressive. In February 1917 some of the revolutionary leaders in Russia had also argued along the same lines suggesting that the revolution was a bourgeois democratic one, that had overthrown the Tsar and ushered in a period of capitalist development. But Lenin and and the Bolsheviks recognised that in a backward country like Russia, the liberal bourgeois wasn't developed enough or strong enough to deal with imperialism and resolve the land question. It was the historic task of the workers to complete the revolution and go beyond to establish a socialist society. In October 1917, by advancing the slogan all power to the Soviets, the Bolsheviks placed these pre-existing organs of power at the center of a second genuinely workers' revolution. With the July the 26th movement, rather than setting out to establish a a socialist society with a program based on the experience of workers' control through democratic organizations like Soviets, they were forced to introduce a planned economy under the pressure of events. Having been isolated by the US, They looked to the Soviet Union and adopted a bureaucratic model of state planning. Now, some people have argued that despite what happened in the insurrection, the Cuban regime went on to establish elements of workers' control. For example, within a year of taking powers, committees for the defence of the revolution were set up across Cuba. Initially, this was in response to the threat of counter-revolutionary activity. But they also adopted the role of maintaining public health and education, as well as looking after the environment. They also organised mass rallies, as well as civil defence during the annual hurricane season. Now, I don't think that's an insignificant point. In fact, I think it's quite important, because in the six years between 1996 and 2002, six major hurricanes hit Cuba. Yet only a total of 16 people died. By contrast, in 2005, some comrades in the room will remember Hurricane Katrina when it hit the southern states of of the US and the devastation that it caused. Over 1,800 people died. And and 15 years later, whole areas of New Orleans are yet to be rebuilt. And that's in an advanced capitalist state. So we can see that there are elements of workers' self-organisation in Cuba But this isn't the same as workers control. Workers are consulted in Cuba, but they're not directly involved in the planning or the running of the economy. And before I finish, I'd like to make a specific point here about the role of women in the Cuban insurrection, because I think it illustrates how the workers in Cuba in the revolution were marginalised. In a healthy workers movement, women play a central role not as women or feminists, but as women who are workers. In Russia, it had been a strike of women textile workers in St. Petersburg, who had been a catalyst for the revolutionary strikes that followed. Women became active participants in the Soviets, and therefore they were bound to go on and play an active role in the new workers at state. So the programme that was introduced by the Bolsheviks, supported the full participation, liberation and emancipation of women in society due to their direct involvement. But when a revolutionary movement is based upon a handful of guerrillas hiding out in the mountains, it's almost by definition going to be led by men. Now, there were individual women who were part of the guerrilla movement, but they weren't an organised group. Women in Cuba played an auxiliary role in their own liberation. Consequently, they were passive receivers of the uh, social benefits and not active participants. So in conclusion then, in answer to the question whether the working class must be the engine for revolutionary change, clearly Cuba demonstrates that other social forces such as guerrilla movements can be successful in overthrowing (laughs) capitalism. Also, under the very specific conditions that existed in 1959, a world divided by two opposing social systems and ideologies, a planned economy and all the social benefits that go with it can be achieved. However, is is a similar scenario likely or even possible in the world today? Without the model of the Soviet Union, I've argued that it would be impossible for such a state to emerge, let alone sustain itself. But more importantly socialism requires the active participation of workers. So if we look at Russia we can see the experiences of 1905 and 9, February 1917 with the developments of the Soviets. This was a, an essential prerequisite for a healthy workers state. The Bolsheviks under Lenin based their program on the active participation of the workers and consequently This became reflected in the state that emerged in October 1917. As revolutionaries in the 21st century, it's essential that we too direct our work towards the working class. It is only the working class who are able to organise collectively to solve the complex problems the planet faces today. Thank you, comrades.